I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 440. If I could sing an A right now with perfect pitch, I would do it. Anyway, episode 440 for the week of June 9th, 2014. On today's show, bassist Max Johnson. Remember, you can become a member for 5 bucks a month, get you free MP3s with each show, and your $5 goes directly toward paying for my trips to New York City to record more interviews. Speaking of which, I only have one interview left in the can after this one from my most recent trip, so it looks like it is time for me to go to New York again. So kick in those memberships, won't you folks, and help me do that. You can become a member by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. Don't forget to rate the show in iTunes and leave a review. You can also make comments right on the post itself at thejazzsession.com. Don't forget you can buy albums that you hear on this show in the Jazz Session store. When you do it that way, you'll be taken to Amazon, and you can buy the album there at the same price you would normally pay, but a little piece of your purchase will come back to benefit the Jazz Session at no additional cost to you. Also... You can click a link, go to Amazon, click a link on the Jazz Sessions website, go to Amazon, and buy anything, and a little piece of your purchase price will come back to the Jazz Sessions. So even if you decide that you're going to buy something else once you get there, feel free to do it by first clicking on the Jazz Sessions store, because a little bit of what you spend will help keep this show going. This show at least in the beginning, is a little weird. Uh, I will be the first to admit, this was at the very end of a very long day of interviews, and the last person I scheduled to interview that day was Max. You know who is, he appeals to my goofy side, and so you're going to hear all of that. This show just kind of starts in the middle of conversation that was already occurring and uh, continues much in that same vein for a while. So... (laughs) Prepare yourselves. Uh, Get ready for that after we hear some music from Max. I'm not sure why all of a sudden the idea of being a prisoner occurred to me, but um, 
<laughs> it's a small apartment. <laughs> That's very why. Small. Because yeah. it is uh, what is uh, snarkily referred to as a junior one-bedroom, <laughs> but what I would like to refer to as a, a studio with walls right. put inappropriately throughout it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I did use your, your quarter bathroom. I mean, yeah, I have two really half nice. bathrooms. Yes. One with a shower, one with a toilet. Nice. And the one with the shower is annexed because there used to be a bathtub in the thing when it was built. It's a tenement building. That's awesome. Brooklyn. Um, yeah, so uh, you... I, I've known about you for a while now, and you've sent me other music, but recently you sent me what seemed to me to be a, an email pandering directly to me, though you couldn't have known that, uh, and about an album that combines both free improvisation and the television show The Prisoner. Oh, certainly. Uh, yeah, which you know was completely right up my alley. Um, and I'm curious why it was up yours and how you... Hey, why it was up yours? I swear to God you've infected me. This is now... Just, just I don't even filthy. know this what's is, going on. We're working blue guys, today. Guys, we're going to put an explicit sign on this podcast exactly. today. And I just made a we're working blue joke. Yeah, with, with all a lot dishes. of blue dishes. See, that's... We're I'm not even cylinders. the worst at puns today. Eight minutes and 50 seconds in, not no a music. single piece of content. Not a yeah. single actual Nothing valuable usable. piece of content. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be a three-minute interview when this is all edited People out. listen to it. They're like, oh, well, we're turning this off now. Yeah, <laughs> not, usually this show is so good. Uh, so tell me about The Prisoner and why, why it inspired this music. Well, I first saw the show when I was about 12, um, when I was in a Borders books, uh, and my dad, I was with my dad, and we saw the box set of The Prisoner, and he was like, oh, I remember that show when I was a kid, and it was on sale for super cheap, like, clearance, and he was like, oh, I'll buy that, and we bought it, and I watched it, and I really liked it as a kid, but I was also really liked British 60s TV as a kid. I really liked The Avengers. Sure. It was a favorite to watch. The Emma Peel era of The Avengers, specifically, and Monty Python, of course, but, so I watched The Prisoner, and it, I, I didn't, like, it's there's kind of no reference point for it because it's just such a strange entity that this Patrick McGowan decided he he was done doing Secret Agent Man. He's like, well, I want to do this show where this guy is taken to a place and it never resolves and you never really find out what it is or where it is. And, I mean, nothing actually happens. Like, over the course of the show, nothing like, they don't end up anywhere different than where it begins. And I think that that's, like, a beautiful, patient thing that you'd never see. And they let him do it. Um, and then, so, I really liked it when I was a kid. And for some reason, a few years ago, I decided to watch the whole thing again. And at that point, I had been rewatching a lot of things I really liked. And drawing a lot of musical inspiration from outside arts, most notably film, and most notably Charles Bronson, which is something that, um, if you're one of the six people that's seen me perform live, you probably know that I, if I play any of my songs that dedicated to Bronson, I'll go off on some sort of rant and ever, lose the room entirely. But, uh, so I had, I had been watching movies, and then as soon as the movie is done, just run to the notation paper and kind of write out a tune or just a little melody. And then when my trio recorded our first record, we actually did three songs that I wrote based on Bronson movies that I wrote like as soon as I finished the movie. And so I started watching The Prisoner again, and all of these musical ideas and themes started kind of popping up in my head as I was doing it. And... I just started writing them down and thinking that, man, this is there's a lot of stuff going on here. And as soon as I finished it, which is a 17-episode um, series, 
uh, I had all of these concepts written down or like a little piece of a melody that I was inspired by, like this bit of dialogue or this event happened and like the, like a conceptual thing written down. So I had all this music. About half of it was written out and half of it was just in sketch form. And I said, well, I should play this. So I asked Ingrid Lawbrock and Tomo Fujiwara, who I'd been playing with a few times like informally to get together and play a gig doing it. And then I met Matt Maneri a few weeks later, and it was so nice to play with him. And I was like, oh, man, he would, I think, really add to that. So I asked him to join us, too. And then we played our first show in March of 2012 and did, like, half of the suite there. And... Then I said, oh, man, I really like how that went. I'm going to keep going and kind of flush it out and finish writing it and, and finish the piece and, you know, record it. So in the case of both the Bronson films and The Prisoner, there are, in addition to all the other conceptual things, there are there are musical elements in both of those things. Did they have any influence on the music, or did you try not to let that happen? Um, the musical element of The Prisoner specifically didn't really influence the music that I wrote. A, there actually was one piece where just the first half bar of the music was kind of taken from just the mood of one of the episodes, but that was the one piece that I f- actually decided to cut from this. Okay. Piece. I have it still sitting around, and it might be played by another group at some point, but yeah, the rest was just more inspired by events or structure or a conversation or a mood. The mood of a lot of things is really important, and that show is super patient, and the the whole 45 minutes will just be spent of him playing like a few small pranks on the uh person in charge it's hard to kind of go into it without like doing a synopsis yeah but in short the prisoner is about a ex secret agent played by Patrick McGowan who uh resigns and he has all this information about being you know a top secret agent and he is kidnapped and taken to this island, uh, which is 
which he, where he's being held prisoner, but not like a prisoner in a jail. He's being held in this like kind of utopian village where everyone is brainwashed and everyone obeys the person in charge whose name is number two. No one there has names. They only have numbers. His is number six. And then the whole show is him trying to escape uh, week after week. That's a man. Quick synopsis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it, I highly recommend it. And I uh, also recommend the album. But uh, of course I do because I <laughs> made it. Um, but uh, the, sh- the series is fantastic uh, from 1968. But yeah, the mood of it is is really beautiful and so patient. And I don't think it's really like any other TV show. There's, I mean, elements of patience and, and time-taking in Twin Peaks that I think is, is something that it's not similar, but it's it's definitely unique enough that you could say like, well, if yeah, yeah, holds its own. Sure. Is, is it important at all for the people who hear this music to have any familiarity with the prisoner? I don't think so. Uh, I tried originally. It was very, there was a lot more conceptual stuff initially than what I ended up writing and revising and recording because I felt that the, music itself got bogged down in like trying to replicate this exact mood going into this exact mood with this exact many things and i just when we played it it felt a little too busy and a little too dictated and i cut a few things and the music just flowed a lot better and i feel like it was more a starting place and a like heavy inspiration but i don't think it really adds it i don't think it might if uh, if you're listening to the music the same way I think, and also watch the show the same way I think, which if you do, God help you. Um, because I'm, you know, you, I would hate to be in my own head, but, uh, you might, you'll definitely see the connection, but I don't think you need it by any chance. Sure. Also Ingrid and Toma had not seen the show. So half of the people playing the music had, had never seen it, which is fine because it's just music. Yeah. Um, and it's not like we're doing the soundtrack for it. Or right. Although you brought up another thing about the influence of the music within the film that was films that were influencing me. And actually in the case of Charles Bronson, uh, the, the movies in question, death wish one, four and two, which I actually wrote pieces based on. And there was actually one about three, but we haven't played it since I wrote it. And those, the it was just influenced by, like, I finished watching the movie, ran to the thing, and wrote some music. But Once Upon a Time in the West, which is absolutely one of my favorite movies, and yeah, kind of the, I'm doing air quotes, best Charles Bronson movie in terms of, like, filmmaking, uh, is something that I really love. And I took, and I actually recently, two weeks ago, recorded a medley of music from that movie with one of my groups with Chris Davis and Susan Alcorn and Mike Pride. A medley of music actually from the yes, soundtrack. Exactly. Film. Okay. Yeah. Which was an Ennio Morricone soundtrack sure. and it's beautiful music. It is and amazing. That's yeah. Part of a record we just recorded and I have no idea what will be done with, but it's really great. Thank you. 
When you said before that you cut conceptual things, when you're saying conceptual, are you referring to kind of more programmatic elements where like someone could listen and can say, well, here's this happens in the plot and then this music Yeah, this or at least plot. it was directly coming from that. So, for instance, if he does ten little tiny, you know, pranks throughout something or little things to annoy number two within it, I had ten little tiny musical ideas, but in playing it, maybe you only need seven of them because sure. it just made it a little too choppy maybe cut that and just have the seven and i think in one piece that is exactly what i did or maybe not with that number of, of yeah. things but so and then it just would flow more and be less you know about adhering to a very specific thing can you talk about the way in which watching film affects the way you write do you have some insight into that into what happens that changes your writing process based on what you're watching I, at least in terms of the way that that I do it, which is, I mean, idiosyncratic to m me, uh, is that I try to just watch or listen listen to something or, en you know, enjoy the a book. And just when you're reading or watching or listening to something and you something catches you, it's kind of like a little spark of, Sometimes it's actually like a fully fleshed out melody or idea that I will just hear. Other times it's just like a, hmm, maybe that would be, that's a nice paragraph. That's a really great description of something that really gives me a specific sound in my head. And then just going and trying to figure out what that is. And I'm actually writing a a piece inspired by Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, which is actually a uh sorry just belched <laughs> but uh i shouldn't have said that no, no one would have known yeah i could have edited but it but now <laughs> now there it is now we all know <laughs> i had brisket for dinner everyone uh you it's not like you could smell it or anything but um so raymond chandler's the big sleep which is a great novel i'm sure we all know and i'm just taking if by we you mean the two of us at this table, then yes, 100% of us know the big sleep. Uh, so 1939, it's like he's the like 
quote unquote father of noir. But uh, so I'm taking like little sections of that and some things you while reading it, you just go, oh, OK, I see how that this room could be translated into music. And other times you have to work at it more and think like on different levels, like what is what? But I'm I by no means I'm like, you know, the, the, I'm just trying out all this stuff because sometimes you watch a movie or read a book and you go, oh, man, I'm really inspired to do stuff right now. Yeah. Or sometimes see a concert. I mean, that's the much more directly related. Um, you know, going out and see, you know, a bunch of the new music Tim Byrne wrote and going, oh, man, you can write stuff like that? I should go and write a bunch of new music and not give a shit about what people are what you know what i've been doing in the past you know yeah. sometimes it's that easy and other times you know i'm watching charles bronson chase down criminals waving like a giant gun i'm like like thinking of like a bass line that would go really nice behind it i'm like oh man i should write that down <laughs> and other times i'm on like on a bus or something with no pen and paper and i'm like oh it's gone but yeah it's not like it was you know you never know whatever has has writing always been a big part of music for you uh I f- things like always is such a, a, a funny thing because by which I mean since you were in the womb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, then no. <laughs> okay, and good. In, fine. Next question is Yeah. Well, when I was in the womb, <laughs> I was much more into painting. Um yeah, I used to write a lot of poetry, yeah, finger yeah. painting. Right. Um but uh No, I I as as long as I mean the last 5 years I've been really into it, but Keeping my age in mind, which everyone out there, I am 25 years old, uh, makes a lot of sense. Because sure. if, you know, just, I don't know, there, I, 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 for answering a question like, have you always been into this? I feel like a liar. So I was like, yes, I have always been into this. Because that <laughs> right. implies that, like, at least, like, since I was 10 or something, I've been <laughs> writing. But, like, but when I was a teenager, I would write a little stuff, but I wasn't, like, composing. It was sure. really, like, a more recent thing in the last five six years or so was there a trigger for it oh nothing more than just i why not try writing my own music it wasn't like i a frustration or some sort of divine intervention thing it was just like oh everybody writes their own music i should do that too yeah. because there's i mean there's and also we're in a time when people are playing original music primarily uh there are i mean so many jazz musicians coming up. I'm kind of, there's definitely, I'm certainly within, if not the first, one of like the second generation of people that just professional jazz musicians just not knowing any tunes because you haven't had to play them. And there are still people, plenty of people that do in, on gigs, but it's not as much pre- prerequisite now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, sure, 60 years ago. But like, so people just come up just playing original music. So it's interesting. Okay, but so let's... That's a whole thing, That's though. perfect. Let's... We're going to... Oh, that's a whole thing that we are about to dive deeply into. Okay, so while I'm in New York this weekend, as you already know, I'm staying at the home of two of my best friends, Ken Filiano and Andrea Olper. Which are both wonderful people. They are amazing people. And... Uh, Check them out online, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ken and com. You can find Andrea um, on Facebook. Ken Filiano is <laughs> oh not God. there. Ken Filiano, yeah, he's nowhere. Uh, but anyway, Ken and I were just talking this morning about this very topic. <laughs> Matt, 
There's no, I'm totally not going to not say that okay, Max I'm is getting, getting up, up and, and getting... subtly signaling me to keep talking on <laughs> I'm, my own show I'm, I'm getting while he goes to the fridge. Listen, you're in my house, Crane. Thank you, thank you for okay. the permission to continue hosting my okay. own show. I Listen, appreciate I'm just getting that. water. <laughs> just trying to wet the whistle. I'm talking a lot. Okay. So, uh, this morning we were talking about... Ken and I were talking about this very subject, about whether, whether it was still necessary for people to have a grounding in the tradition. And this is a topic that has come up many, 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 many times on this show. Um, and so, but you're the first person I think who's ever explicitly said on this show, look, there's a, there's at least one generation, if not two of musicians who, for whom playing tunes has just never been a major part of what they do, which is not to say people don't do it in school or whatever. I wouldn't say that because there are certainly people and I'm, friends with many who grew, know every tune, you know, they grew up playing sure. it and work a lot playing it. And I, you know, I know a few hundred standards and I really enjoy a lot of tunes and there's some that I don't know that I work on learning, you know, but the, it's not as much a required prerequisite to make a living anymore. And people are just so, at least as in jazz, like people aren't, unless you're playing totally straight ahead gigs, there's not that many people just calling tunes on gigs anymore. Most people are composing. Everyone's a composer now. And, I mean, people were a composer in the 50s, too. But, you know, even when you listen to, like, Miles Quintet records, and it's they're playing original tunes, and then you hear the live set, and they're playing mostly old classics. And there's, you know, you record one thing, but on the gig they'd play a lot of other stuff. And then, you know, before that there were people writing that were composers writing charts writing things for large ensembles and then there were people who were just players and i feel like it's the opposite of classical music where everyone was a composer and a player like up until pretty much the 20th century or the and a pro, or approaching the 20th century almost every famous classical composer was also a musician and probably a virtuoso or if not a virtuoso a damn good musician sure and the 20th century there's players that played remedial piano or violin and they weren't really a performer by any means and it did it kind of separated there and that kind of and then jazz it kind of went the other way like everybody writes even you know everyone's doing original tunes on gigs even if their tune is just like let's play all the things you are in five and I wrote a new melody on it. Like it's, you know, that's their version of a new tune. Sure. So what impact do you kind of see that having on this generation? Oh man, it's hard. There are, I think there's, there's great musicians always. And I feel like it might be, have been the same since like, the twenties, like the same percentage of the population of musicians has been great, except there's more people now. So there's a whole lot of great musicians and there's a whole lot of crummy ones. And I don't, in influence wise, I think people are just coming at it from different angles. You're seeing way more variation in the music that people are listening to, the music people are playing. My, like myself, I mostly make a living as a bluegrass bass player. And I know thousands of songs in that canon. Like, sure. And I know the standards of that world and play four or five times a week playing that music. And it's music I love. And but in it, that world, is it common to play the canon? The, yeah. The it's, you, okay. 
you rarely play an original song on a gig unless you're touring with a a set band sure. that's going around. But like I play, you know, restaurants and bars and stuff where it's you get together and do standards. And I've done the same thing doing jazz at a hotel or yeah. What it's this, but when you're, I think everybody has to find so many creative ways to make a living, and jazz isn't particularly lucrative. And neither is any kind of music, like any style of music. Pop music isn't lucrative either, except for the upper .01%. So you have to find all these ways to make a living. So you're more and more seeing people with these scattered backgrounds and not like a really firm-rooted thing in one thing. Maybe it's playing jazz. Maybe it's playing classical music. Maybe it's playing... like I'm, And in terms of improvised musicians so many of my favorite european improvisers of the 60s 70s didn't come up playing standards either like and some people that have made the like the greatest music ever like barry guy who's one of my absolute favorite bass players is not like a guy that you think of when you're like oh man that guy probably knows all the standards he might know all the standards of baroque repertoire because he works a lot playing that music and he's played with uh, so many orchestras in london but not he's not sitting on a gig playing Billy's Bounce. Right. Which I hope no one is doing. That is not a good tune. I think everything is great. Listen, every... these So many songs are classic because they're classic. We don't need to play that one anymore. Or Blue Bossa. Just cut them. <laughs> Keep everything else. You heard it here. Also, I'm pretty sure in whatever episode yours turns out to be 440-something that no one has ever... And I'm disappointed about this, and I'm very happy you've introduced it. No one has ever used the word crummy on this show until you just a few minutes ago. It's a great word. Well, it's also, I mean, yeah. Crummy is like, eh. You know, yeah. it's it's not like, oh, man, that guy's, that guy's terrible. Yeah. It's very different than terrible. There's a lot of people getting by that you would not want to listen to, but, like, if they were playing at a, a hotel or a bar or something and they were so quiet you could hardly hear them, it wouldn't bother you. And that's a cr- that's crummy. Like, and I've done those gigs too. I've you know I've I've been the crummy dude at like sitting in the back of a loud restaurant playing, and then someone comes up to you and goes, "Oh my goodness, there's a band." Literally today, somebody did that. I I played a bluegrass gig three sets earlier today. Someone came up. Oh man, you guys have been playing? Yeah, it's like yeah, we've been here since twelve thirty. She's like, "Oh my goodness, we're leaving now." It's like, okay, that's great. <laughs> Oh, man. Maybe if you weren't screaming the whole (laughs) time.
So you, uh, as you just were talking about musicians, uh, you know, in the in the broader sense, who have varied and unconventional backgrounds, which is uh, an incredibly apt description of you. For example, um, you have a, an unconventional background and an unconventional present as well. Um, but you you came up in a way that does not suggest itself le- leading you to improvised music necessarily i think that's is that fair to say it would be fair to say if if you if you had if if uh you looked at 15 year old max johnson in the eye and said listen you're going to be playing mostly free improvised free improvised double bass you're going to be working mostly playing bluegrass you're going to be playing in an indie rock band you're going to be uh you're gonna like fly out to do a weird festival like at some sort of farm here and then fly home and be like what was that you're gonna like pop up in random places doing the most you know random things you're gonna be playing the music of frank zappa people i would be like what are you talking about i'm gonna be like the next geezer butler i'm gonna be playing in whatever the equivalent of black sabbath is and 10 years ago is such a long time for me and not for everybody else um not to say oh i'm young everybody but you know what i mean if some people you have a professional career for 25 years you know yeah it's it doesn't make that big of a difference but i'm like you know i'm a i'm a newcomer i'm a i'm a i'm a young flower ready to be plucked <laughs> put in a vase <laughs> put it on your table so let, let's talk more specifically that about that makes no your, sense it, it doesn't but i'm just letting it go it's art right, it's roll it, yeah yeah exactly jazz. yeah keep it keep it keep it it's rolling like boys. Jazz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's my least favorite thing uh, it's mine too i just heard someone well anyway if i say what i just heard that will become immediately obvious because it will be some number of episodes around this one and so let's just leave it um so you're you are one of those people who grew up in the quote-unquote musical household right that's true yeah Oh, I should oh, talk sorry. about that. Yeah. You don't have to. <laughs> oh no, I thought you it was just verify every fact that I said. I thought it was like a game show. It's like, so you grew <laughs> yes. up in a musical household. That's yes. right, Jason. <laughs> I grew up in a musical household. Contestant number three. Would yes, you like no, to ask mask a question? I grew up in a musical household. Uh, my father, Glenn Johnson, wonderful man, wonderful drummer, uh, is a drummer. <laughs> just said that. <laughs> uh, he had a band called The Leisure Class from the late seventies through the mid nineties, which started in Detroit and then moved out to new york and they are one of those classically unclassifiable bands that you know he also had a super eclectic taste in music and i really can attribute uh all of my good taste in which is such a subjective thing i can't believe i just said that out loud <laughs> in music and him one two three Crawl slowly 
ulster jacket and onto his neck. I thought about leaning forward and using my thumb, index, and middle finger, squeezing the life out of the bug. I do it gently, so gently. It'd be like a princess's kiss. Uh, because he would play me different things, and I'd be listening like, you know, like a new metal record, like something that's now I would cringe listening to. He's like, oh, no, 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 check this out, and put on like Master of Puppets, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is better. I don't know what it is about it, because I'm 11, but this is better. So, yeah, he, he's, he was always playing me good music, and even before I started playing, I would had, a, you know, good things in my ear. I can remember... I have like this, you know, I have actually a very cloudy childhood memory, but I can remember The Torture Never Stops by Frank Zappa, which is not an appropriate song to be playing for children, uh, just from like a kid. I just remember the bass line. I remember the whole sound of the song from like when I was a little kid. And I don't know, it's just I must have played a few times. Like he must have played Zoodalores a few times for me. So yeah, and then when I was 13, I started playing electric bass, and I had... I have literally no story there, which is rare. Usually there's some sort of reason. I honestly can't remember anything other than being like, yeah, I like coming home. Yeah, I want to play bass. And my parents were like, okay, let's go find you a bass. And yeah. So we went and got like a starter bass. And... <laughs> Like so a, you started playing bass having previously played nothing at all? or I played clarinet and tuba in a middle like, school band. Like you do. Yeah. Clarinet, I wish I just stuck with clarinet. Tuba's great, but clarinet's my favorite instrument. I wish I had like some sort of... I have one in the closet that comes out every now and then. I play long tones and sound horrible on it. It's a real instrument. <laughs> like I have no idea what to do with it. Or the bass for that matter. <laughs> So 13, electric bass? Yeah. And so I just started playing in, like, rock bands around high school. And then I joined this thing, the School of Rock, which has since uh, taken off and blown up. And it's kind of insane that it's as huge as it is now because I think it's maybe 25 years old as an organization. That can't be. That's right, actually. Something like that. So I joined that. There was one in, in Hackensack. And they classified me as one of the better kids there, and I got put in the All-Star program, which is a program that toured around the country and would do, like, a guest tour with, like, John Anderson from Yes or John Wetton from King Crimson. And we did a tour with the Butthole Surfers and, like, all these different, like, weird guests. And so I was a teenager to take a week off of school to go on tour with John Anderson and play all Yes and that was a it was definitely a really great childhood to have because it exposed me to a lot of stuff and it also exposed me to a lot of the like imperfections of the school of rock system and the guy who ran it was a nutcase uh and so you know i had to learn how to, like responsibility stuff like oh my god no one is remembering to bring this thing into the club i have to do this or no one is announcing things from the stage i have to do this or no one's making a checklist of all the stuff we've forgotten so like i kind of always have taken an active role of mm -hmm. no one's doing this i need to do it i need to figure out how to do this and kind of not letting anything go and so my parents were both super uh supportive of music and like will always drive me to gigs and 
always help me out with stuff. And even when I started doing gigs in New York, they would always, you know, drive me into the gig or come to it or, you know, yeah. find out a way to get me home. Because I'm from northern New Jersey, so I'm not too far from uh, New York, but far enough where the, when the train stuff's running at midnight, you're screwed. Yeah. Uh, Montclair, New Jersey, specifically. Did your dad's career... This sounds like a dumb question, but did your dad's career make it easier for them to accept that you were also headed in that direction? Like being a musician wasn't a crazy idea. To yes, them? Yeah. you know he it was. An, it, I think. Yeah, it's to some people it is impossible to believe that that is a career, and I always have to have this conversation at weddings or uh, birthday parties of someone. Like I'll go to a, like a wedding with my girlfriend for one of her friends, and I'll be at a table with a bunch of strangers, and they're like, "What do you do for your living?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm a musician." They're like. Oh man, uh, cool. Like, what do you do, like, for money? I'm like, oh, you don't understand. And they're like, well, I used to play guitar. I was really good, but then I got a real job. I was like, I right, bet yeah. you were the greatest guitar <laughs> player there ever was. I bet you were Jimi Hendrix in, in, incarnate with that attitude. So, yeah, not with Screw that, attitude, that guy. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah. No, so he understood that it was a thing. And he didn't really, like, he had this band and he was the band leader of it. Um, and wrote all the music and was a composer also and and uh but it, there was no like career there, so it was like it was always something in New York, and they had a thing going here for a little while, but it was not like he traveled doing that sure it was, um it was a twelve piece band actually, fun fact about that, which is probably not fun to that many people, but fun to maybe listeners of the jazz session, trumpet player Russ Johnson, no relation, was also in that band in the late eighties early nineties wow. uh when he was my age. So that's a little fun fact for you guys. <laughs> a little leisure, leisure class. Le- leisure fact. class. Uh, <laughs> check it out, guys. They have a. There actually is a compilation, which is really nice if you want to hear what my dad sounds like playing the drums. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the music was recorded in the '80s, so it sounds like that. Yeah. But uh, the music is still great. So you, following School of Rock, you went to the new school. The new school for jazz and contemporary music. The reason I went there is because I got in. Uh, I applied to two colleges in New York because I wanted to go to school in New York, and one of them was the new school, one of them was Manhattan School of Music. I got into the new school. I got a better vibe there when I went there. I hate using the word vibe, so... I don't even like vibraphone players, to be honest, if we're just... (laughs) Well, I think... Do I like vibraphone players? I don't know many. Yeah. I like Kevin Norton. That's a good way to keep it, He's a nice guy. I don't think I really like know any of the other vibes guys. Yeah, probably but, uh, I should put some disclaimer in here that I'm kidding, right? I think there've been vibraphone players on the show, and I actually do like the vibe. So I'm just going to say that just so that everybody who's ever on the show afterwards doesn't think that I hate. I listen, and I'm not saying that no other vibraphone players are are nice guys because I'm sure they are. I've <laughs> never met Gary Burton. I'm sure he's a sweetheart. <laughs> I bet. I mean, like I've only like spoken to Matt Moran in passing. He yeah, seems very nice, but I don't like I don't like know him. You know, yeah. I'm not like, oh, yeah, my buddy Matt, we're down at the liquor store. <laughs> I probably said hi to him once and heard him play, you know, ten times, and he's great. This is not, you know, I don't need to go on these tangents, yes. I'm a, I'm a, but uh, I don't even remember. So I went to the new school, um, and I got into the school on electric bass. I was still playing electric bass. And soon everyone's playing standards. All the classes, they're teaching you standards. You're transcribing Charlie Parker from this, Lester Young from this. And I realized that most of the music that I was into at that point uh, was being played on an upright bass, and I should learn how to play the upright bass. And at the last two years in high school, I had been in the orchestra playing upright bass, but 
without any lessons on it and without an instrument at home. And the music teacher just told us, like, oh, yeah, you hold the bow like this, which is totally incorrect. Uh, and then I got to college on electric, and I was like, well, I want to play upright. And I, the teacher who I was studying with at the time was like, okay, uh, learn this bebop head on the bass. I was like, uh, I don't think you understand. I don't know how to play this instrument at all. He's like, okay, uh, so learn it at all 12 keys. And I was like, <laughs> so what I don't think you're understanding is that like I can't make one note sound good on this thing. <laughs> and I really, I listen, I want to practice. I want to do it. And like I was practicing a lot of electric bass at the time. I had the work ethic for it. And he was like, so uh, yeah, learn this other bebop head. And like gave me a D for private lessons in at in my first year at the school. Like a D in lessons. Like, And I showed up for all of them. So that's like... It's because I couldn't play anything, and he would just give me hard things, and it was very discouraging. I was like, oh, man, maybe I should quit school. Like, I got all disappointed about it. And then that June, right after I finished my first year, I'm just straight-up storytelling. And then that June, after the uh, first uh, year of school, I met Henry Grimes uh, at the Vision Festival. Uh, Actually, my band that I was playing with like in high school and post-high school, The Will, was playing this show at... This, like Don Hills, was that the name of? Yeah, I shouldn't have that bad a memory. I am a child. Um, but we were playing Don Hills, and then afterwards, it was on my birthday, June thirteenth. Everybody, whoop whoop. Uh, Gemini is out there, right? In guys? fact, when this airs, your birthday will be in four days. So, folks who are going to buy a present should get on it. Guys, right now. buy me a present or buy a present. Buy a record as a present to me. That's right. Nice. That's perfect. Uh, slick. So on my birthday, I believe the year was 2009, I met Henry Grimes. Yes, that's correct. Who uh, I was, you know, I, I was a fan of from the record The Call mm. uh, because, weirdly enough, uh, my dad knew Perry Robinson, the oh, clarinet wow. player, because he lived in Hoboken when we lived in Hoboken. Okay. And I have memories of him as, like, a child doing magic tricks for me on the street at like street fairs. But yeah, no. So I remember him doing like little magic tricks for me as a kid. And so when I started getting into jazz, my dad would, you know, here's this Mingus record. Here's monk. Here's Pharaoh Sanders. Oh, you should check this out. Remember this guy as a kid. And he put on the Henry Grimes record with Perry on it. And, uh, so I had been a fan of his and, uh, this, and I didn't know anything about anything, so I was like, oh, my God. I just, like, saw he was playing because I never heard about the Vision Festival, didn't know. I was like, Henry Grimes is playing. Let me go see him. So I went to go see him. I went up to him afterwards, told him, you know, how much of a big fan I was and if he teaches lessons. And he, it, and Margaret, his wife, was like, yes, he does. He Here's my card. And then so I went over there and, like, took a lesson with him, and it was like we just played bass uh, for two and a half hours like uninterrupted, just two bases, no talking. And then afterwards, he said, that last thing you did, just try to make it a little more consistent. And I was like, oh, man. Yeah, you, he had a point about like this one thing that I did, and I was like, okay. And then we just talked a little bit, and uh, I continued to study there, and he was super inspirational and would always say when something sounded good and would stop if something wasn't happening. But just this, like, his willingness to just, like, play the bass for a couple hours with me was really, like, encouraging, and that, like, led me to keep playing. And then I went to school for a few more years, dropped out because I ran out of money, and then went back and finished. 
Very exciting. This year, that is. I just finished, guys. So it's a success story. <laughs> I have a it's degree. A I have a That's bachelor's right. degree in jazz performance. It's a feel-good story. Tell us where in this chronology Bluegrass came in. Oh, it came in while I was still a teenager, while I was still playing the electric bass. I was friends with Sean Trishka, who's the son of banjo player Tony Trishka, and I would go see Tony Trishka play a bunch. With At the time, his band was Brittany Haas, Skip Ward, and Michael Daves. And they'd play a bunch, and I would go with Sean and go see that him play. And I was I just got, a, in, I got into it about the same time I got into jazz, like concurrently listening to the music and listening to like Bill Monroe box set. And uh, so then when I started playing the upright bass, I put like an ad on Craigslist, like I'm looking to play bluegrass bass. And I got a, actually got a call for a gig at some art gallery. And I probably, I sounded horrible. Like I could not keep time on the upright cause I'd only owned it for a few years, like not years, a few months, like three months or so. But uh, you know, I got into it, and then I started sh- showing up at jam sessions, and then I went to the Gray Fox Bluegrass Music Festival, which is... Did I just add words to the name of that festival? That's for you to decide. <laughs> um, so I went there, and I met, like, all the players in New York, and since have just been, you know, been playing and have regular gigs and work... I just work freelance within New York. There's not there in, within New York itself. There aren't that many established bands. There are just there are a lot of like pickup things. So huh. I work a lot doing that it's and fun. enjoy it. There's a lot of amazing players always moving to the city. Yeah, I imagine. And um, the bluegrass scene here. I was just talking with this about this concept with someone recently that um, a vocalist came to town from Canada and stayed in Brooklyn when I was still living here. And she would go to all these vocalist-specific like jam sessions that I didn't even know existed because I wasn't really into that scene. And then I was talking just a few weeks ago to Emily Asher, who plays in the trad jazz scene here. Oh, she's and great! Like, yeah, a whole there's a whole she established. Plays, probably she goes to the Mona's, which is the exactly, Tuesday night yeah, thing. Yeah. My friend Dennis runs that. Yeah, nice. And so now, I mean, this is just yet one more thing that I'm sure is alive and vibrant and many, many, many people know about, but to me, the existence of a regular bluegrass scene in New York is just something I didn't know Yeah, about. New York is actually becoming, if not 
the biggest place, one of like the five biggest places for bluegrass. Like everyone from Boston, which is also a big bluegrass scene because of New England Conservatory in Berkeley, it's got a lot of young players. They were moving to New York. People are moving up from North Carolina, from Nashville. It's kind of becoming a hub. And uh, there's there's a big scene for it. And actually, Mona's on Monday nights has the best bluegrass jam session in the city. And like the house band's always killer. And I'll sub in when Jared Engel's not playing bass. And there, it's like a really great hang. And that's like kind of where the players go to play. Yeah. But it's it's you know it's it's got a, the scene's really strong in New York. And there's a lot of really great people here. What has playing bluegrass done for you as a bass player? Um, I. It's really one of those things that, with any music, to try to play it as respectfully as possible, but also as creatively as possible. And for a while, I didn't understand what my job was on a gig. I would play way too much stuff or didn't understand what the time feel was. But over time, you play and you figure out how you need to propel the music forward how it need the time needs to push things and then you realize okay now how can i play some really obnoxious stuff that'll knock everyone off of their feet and keep everybody on their toes the whole time playing a bunch of weird things so i work a bunch of chromatic harmony into it or some odd things and haven't been fired yet because of it so it it's one of those things that you could be you know it's one of those things that a lot of people will be like, oh, man, that gig's probably boring. I was like, no, I get to play just as much stuff as I get to play on a free improv gig. It's just in a different context. Yeah. Like, there's just as much freedom except there's a song form, and there are great songs. And, you know, it's the same thing as with, you know, jazz standards. Like, there are so many classic songs that you play, and they are great songs for a reason, and you love them. It is the... The timekeeping element is—is that—is the base the primary timekeeping element in bluegrass music? If I were to break down the timekeeping of a band, it would be that the bass has the front half of the beat, the mandolin has the end guitar together, kind of have the second half of the beat. Although the guitar can kind of function either way, so it's the bass and the mandolin kind of—they share halves of the beat. Okay. Um, the guitar kind of brings those together, and the banjo kind of pushes forward it's a constant it's just propelling it's a constant thing okay and the banjo will either join the mandolin on the off beats with chopping or just roll and then dobro or fiddle is really more for obligato or will fulfill the option if one of the other things is missing so within a full bluegrass band that's kind of the breakdown of the time sure so if for instance there's a bass player a mandolin player and a banjo player and that's the whole band and the mandolin player is terrible you can't you can't fix it because if he's behind all the time it's gonna he you know he's just as capable all the only thing you could do is play loud and proud and go no (laughs) you're incorrect but that's not really the case but i feel like with any really great music no one has to keep time and there's a great sentence that i wish i had i gotta like attribute this quote and get it like put in a place because i always bring it up it's jimmy jeffrey has this book on phrasing that came out in 1969 which is out of print and took me forever to find i'm a huge jimmy jeffrey fan and i found this book and the the first part of the book he says something to the effect of in music no one has to keep the time like it's no one's job to keep time if the music's right the time will happen 
and that's I'm butchering I'm sure I'm butchering the quote but the sentiments there is that like in great music you don't need to like force something to happen it's going to happen so no one's thinking about like I've got to make this time happen so when you're playing music it's just like you're just enjoying it in the moment if it's really happening and if it's not you instantly feel like if I'm in a jam session and it's all people that are you know doctors and lawyers and and uh and uh bankers and they're all breaking out their banjos and their guitars and you're like oh my god that's when you physically feel the weight of what it feels like to make time happen sure but when you're playing with heavy musicians it's just like oh this is fun i'm just you know and you realize you're playing even better and you're not even thinking about it yeah um this i'm just looking down at how long we've been talking uh, and realizing that part of this is because this is our 10 of interviews today, but um, that I probably haven't actually steered this interview very well. And part of it is also you being who you are and I'm responding to that, uh, which is great, but I feel like I don't want to finish this interview without mentioning the other projects that you're involved with. Oh um, yeah. I can, so... I could happily just, you know, I could filibuster all night. <laughs> I could talk more about my, my Billy Joel minor key project, <laughs> but tell us some more about, uh, your other trios and okay, yeah. so my trio specifically uh, is like my band. It's the the like I said, I want to put a band together that's super dynamic, and I can play bass acoustic if I'd like to, and we can swing if we want to. We can play really textural if we want to. It's not going to get like violently loud, which is fine. And but I feel like if something can go there, it. It, there sh- it should be all in. And it, I was like, I want this band to be super intense, but still could be a whisper. And I'd heard Zeev Ravitz play with uh, Steve Swell and Joachim Badenhorst uh, a few times at Douglas Street Music Collective because I was playing with Steve on the other bill. And I always loved his drumming. He's fantastic. Every time I get to play with him, it's a, it's a pleasure. And I was like, oh, man, I should really get together with you. And and we'd, you know, we'd always exchange the... The musician, oh yeah, let's play sometime. Oh, let's play. But um, and then I played with Kirk Kanofsky in Federico Ugi's quartet, and he's another person. As soon as I heard him, I was like, oh my god, what a brilliant person! He's got so much stuff going on, and it's is that it's like it's everyone. Is anyone else hearing this? It's like the best thing, you know. Every again, everything's the best or the worst with me. So these two guys are the best. So I recorded a whole album i've i kick-started an album uh with a quartet i funded it i said i want to put do an album i wrote all these songs in my first couple of years in college i it's like i want to just make uh, some music i did a kickstarter and i recorded an album with mark white cage steve swell and tyshawn sorry all amazing improvisers all who i love and all who i wish to play with even more um and we did that and I was like, wow, that's great. And I we did it in such like a classic jazz fashion of like rehearsal and then a gig on the same day and then the recording the next day. And that was kind of all the band did for quite some time. And then I had a gig the next month and I was like, I want to do something different. So I put that trio together with Kirk and Zeev and we played some of the same music and other music I wrote specifically for it. And then I I was at this time where I was just trying to book a lot of stuff to just – motivate myself to do it and they were around for all of it so i we ended up playing like 20 gigs in new york over eight nine months and it was like oh man this is like a band so we recorded a record which is elevated vegetation on fmr records 
uh, which was really nice. And we've been playing as a band ever since, which is three years now. Um, fairly regularly, about as regularly as you can in New York, um, especially with two insanely busy musicians, not counting myself, who I would categorize as mildly busy. Um, but yeah, and so we just put out another record, The Invisible Trio, on Fresh Sound's new talent, which is a lot stronger. Evolved as a band, and sure. there's something there that's just—it's much nicer. And we've been playing a lot since. And there's—it's just such—I can't use—I'm bad at like explaining that band specifically because I have no idea how to explain it. Other than I have so much—I just enjoy it so much, and I feel like such like a weight has been lifted every time I play with them. It's just like this great feeling. And uh, we have—we just played a few times last month, and then. We've been playing a few times. Actually, we've just played one gig, and we have one coming up with the trio plus two guests, which would be Michael Atias and Ingrid Laubrock. And I have all this quintet music I wrote for that band with extra horns. And actually, if you say that this drops on June 9th? I think so, yeah. Uh, tomorrow night. <laughs> or, sorry, tonight? Yes, tonight. June 9th. That's a Monday. Uh, at the sure. Monday night at the Manderley Bar at the McKittrick Hotel. Come check out Max Johnson Trio Plus Two. We'll be playing. Kirk Kanofsky will not be there, sadly, uh, because he will be doing something which I'm sure is much more higher uh, profile than <laughs> performing in a hotel bar at night. Uh, but it'll be great. Thomas Heber is filling in, who is another wonderful musician. There's this thing in New York, and I've had this exact con- conversation with Ken that there's just so many people that are so great, just making music all the time, and it's almost disconcerting but it's also the best it's so great there's just so many people and there's so many people i want to play with who i have played with or i know personally and there's so many more that i've like never met who it's just everyone sounds great yeah and i it's it's hard to like express that but jesus there's so many good every time you go out you hear someone play you're like oh my god another great musician (laughs) stop it (laughs) 
Like, there's just too many of them. But I feel like there is room for everyone. Like, I, I, I never feel any sort of malice towards any other bass player. And I know other people who do have that sentiment are like, oh, man, such and such gets all the gigs. Like, why do they always call? And there are some people that work a lot. I mean, but whatever. I mean, there's room because it's not about the instrument. It's more about the personality. But even in that, there's so many individual personalities in the world. And there's... So, like, even, like, when there's, you know, my trio's on tour with different people and I can't get a gig for four or five months for us, there's so many other people that it's such, like, I never feel like there's a void because there's just so many great people in my life that I get to play with. And there's, you know, I have other bands that I could, you know, I have this band Big Eyed Rabbit with Ross Martin on electric guitar and Jeff Davis on drums, which is fantastic and we actually have some concerts coming up as well. out maxjohnsonmusic.com for details um, but we are and that band actually started we were playing me and Ross had been playing in bluegrass bands and he's a great guitar player from Colorado formerly from Texas and played with Ron Miles and he's an amazing guitar player but he's also an amazing acoustic guitar player and we played bluegrass gigs and we were like man it would be great to like really improvise on some of these in a free context so we put a band together to do that and Jeff Davis knew Ross from Colorado and it's been a super fun band. We have a record coming out this summer on Not Two. So yeah, it's fun. I don't know. I'm bad at. I I feel like I've gone off several tangents on whatever the question was, which was I don't even remember. No, that's perfect. I mean, what I wanted you to do was talk about your other projects, and I think you. Oh, I've done that, that a little bit. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, sometimes that happens. <laughs> I like I, the, as I'm talking too. I'm also kind of like peering around my own kitchen like I don't know where I am because I have I'm just like looking for things to like remind me what I'm supposed to talk about I'm like <laughs> looking over it's I'm terrible at this guys <laughs> check out the minor key Billy Joel <laughs> project yes and and thus have we come full circle and so I think that's a perfect place uh, to remind folks that I've been talking with Max Johnson Max Johnson uh, <laughs> Max Johnson Max Johnson Music. Music. Com. Com. <laughs> 
Ah, uh, Lord, this is going to be such a bitch to edit. Because um, you have done, uh, you've done a lot of interviews today, Jason. I have. I um, have. This is quite a way to end. Yeah, I I, to I'm say. absolutely like I'm very. I'm like I. I just say stuff. Yeah, and it means nothing the I, whole time. I wish this was the final one of the weekend. There are more tomorrow, but I feel like I might need to recover after this one. <laughs> You're so going to have to. Bed to. Early. This is one of those things that I'm <laughs> like. If you edit most of this out, people won't realize how absurd, like, I actually have been this whole time. And I'm sure that, you know, you got to to make it move, you know. Well, th- this interview may consist of seven 90-second clips from the album and then you saying MaxJohnsonMusic.com. <laughs> MaxJohnsonMusic.com, guys. Check it out. This is WROK in the morning with Jason Crane and the wolf. Uh, that's right. yeah. The wolfman lunatic. Yeah. All right, man. Well, Max Johnson. Music.com. That's thank my you name. so much for being on the show. It's been great to talk hey, to you. Hey, thank you and, so much yeah. for coming over. <laughs> why is that funny? I don't know. I give up. I'm, I'm so literally punchy just, at this point. I'm, I'm literally yeah. just replying to what you have to say. <laughs> Let's talk more about some oh, stuff. You Jesus got uh, some Christ. jazz stuff uh, to talk about? Where's the, where's the end button? That is music from Max Johnson. Thanks so much to Max for the great interview. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. It has been a decade since their first album came out, and they are selling all that stuff on their website, respectsextet.com. Please go and buy all their music. Thank you to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you need professional writing work done for your business, for your album, for your upcoming tour, for your multinational but not too evil corporation, please visit cranewrites.com where I do that kind of work. Cranewrites.com. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. 
Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening, listening everybody. everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.